Okay, we've, uh, we've come off the diving board and we're in the pool now because uh, fascinating though all this stuff about the tradition of the elders is and it's, it's good to know it, it's important to know it. But uh, having established that uh, Israel had a, 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 a religious system of traditions that went against the word of God whilst ch claiming that it was inspired by God, uh, okay fine, we say naughty Israel, but, 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 but we've got to realise the Christian church has done it too. And what we're going to turn to now is our modern day. Well, not modern day. It's been going on for, you know, for, for nearly 1900 years. What we've got to turn to now is the Christian church's tradition of the elders. Only what we're going to see, it's not the tradition of the elders. It's the tradition of the early church fathers. And uh, that's, that's what we've got to, to turn to now. And by the early church fathers, what I mean are quite simply the, the leaders of the Christian churches, the guys who, who, shall we say, had the most influence, the spokesmen, the, the big leaders um, of the Christian churches in the 300 years or so until the New Testament was, 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 was kind of uh, fully compiled and recognised and sorted out. So, that, as it were, you could tuck it under your arm and there you had the New Testament to, to actually uh, turn to. And what I'm going to show you is that these guys did something very similar to what the Supreme did. And uh, I'm going to plot this through and you're, you're going to see it clear as day by the time that we've um, finished. Now, there, there are a lot of the early church fathers, but the, the, the guys that I'm interested, I'm just going to go through so you can um, actually know who it is we're going to be looking at. We're, we're firstly going to look at the writings, or not the right, but some of the writings of a guy called Clement of Rome. Now, he was the one of the um, earliest leaders of, of the church at Rome. Paul wrote to the Roman church. Clement of Rome was um, a leader there, and he... Um, he wrote a letter to the Corinthian church around AD 95, and he died around AD 100. Now, to put it in perspective, he's the first one we're going to look at. Paul the Apostle died around 64 AD. So, so, so we're, we're, we're kind of 30, 35 years after the death of Paul, and uh, he's around the time that John the Apostle is finishing off Revelation and, and stuff on the Isle of Patmos. Uh, secondly, we're going to uh, be looking at a guy called Ignatius, uh, he was the Bishop of Antioch, and he died in um, uh, he died around 110 AD. He was actually martyred, um, and he wrote seven letters to, to, to various churches, and we're going to have a little dippy dippy in, into them. Uh, Justin Martyr. Now he wasn't a bishop or a priest or anything like that, and you should already be wondering, bishop, priest, sorry, what are we going on about? They didn't have that in the New Testament. All will be revealed. Uh, but Justin Martyr wasn't a priest or anything like that. He was he was more like an apologist, come philosopher. Think of he was like C.S. Lewis. He he was kind of a, a C.S. Lewis type character, and uh, he was martyred in Rome around 165 A.D. So we're still very early in, in church history. <clears throat> Number four will be Irenaeus, Irenaeus, however you want to say. Um, he studied under Polycarp, who was the Bishop of Smyrna, and he himself became Bishop of Lyon in France around 177 AD. The fifth guy is Tertullian. Excuse me, just going a bit dry there. <clears throat> Tertullian, another apologist philosopher, kind of C.S. Lewis type guy, and uh, he, he became a Christian in 193 AD, and uh, we've got a lot of his writings, and they date between 196 and 212 AD, and uh, he lived in Carthage in Africa. 
And then lastly, because you've got to end somewhere, uh, we're going to look at Cyprian, who was Bishop of Carthage. Now that's where Tertullian lived, uh, but it was later. And he was converted in 264 AD, <coughs> excuse me, and within two years um, of becoming a Christian, um, he was actually made a bishop. So these are the guys that we're going to be looking at. Now, I want to make a couple of tremendously important points. Firstly, the New Testament, although complete by around 95 AD, so by the time Clement of Rome came on the scene, the New Testament was virtually written. But it wasn't fully compiled and fully verified and fully available for some time later, another couple of hundred years or so. It was all around, but no one had it all. I mean, any one of these guys might have had a couple of Gospels, a couple of Paul's letter, a letter of Peter or something like that, but they didn't have the whole New Testament at their disposal. Now, therefore, it is quite understandable that they got things wrong. Uh, I mean, imagine you trying to plant churches and lead churches and you've just got the Old Testament and snippets of the New. You'd probably make quite a lot of mistakes, wouldn't you? But it wouldn't matter if the New Testament was going to come later. Because once it was there, everything, oh, we got that wrong, we got that wrong, and oh, oh, we got that right, that's nice, got something right, you see. It could have all been sorted out once the New Testament was available. So, therefore, um, it's quite understandable that as we read these guys, we're going to see them coming off the wall in regards to certain things. We've got to remember, though, that what is inexcusable (coughs) (coughs) is that if any of these guys got things significantly wrong, If when the church has got the fully compiled New Testament, if the church doesn't then test it all by the Bible and change what was wrong, that would be inexcusable. And we're going to see that's exactly what happened. And so, therefore, we've got to see that there's a major difference between the Pharisees and these early church fathers. I'm not going to call them hypocrites. The tradition of the elders was, was, was all on board and believed with the entire Old Testament there. These guys didn't have the entire New Testament. Um, As I say, they did eventually, uh, but I'm not going to lay the charge of hypocrisy against these guys. As you will realise, I lay the charge of hypocrisy against the church since the New Testament came on the scene. Once the completed New Testament was there, then it's different. If we have unbiblical and anti-biblical stuff once we've got the New Testament, then that is wrong. But these guys, they didn't have the New Testament. So it's understandable they made quite serious blunders here and there. But the second thing that I want to show you is that by definition, for the, 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 the context of what we're looking at, we're going to be concentrating on what they got wrong. But I don't want you to think they didn't get anything right. They got an awful lot right. And, and, and I mean, these, these guys preserved preached, guarded, defined the Christian gospel during a time when a lot of them got killed for it. So, I mean, it's, we're going to be concentrating on what they got wrong, but I don't want you to think that um, they didn't get a lot right. And I mean, when it comes to anyone who's prepared to die for Jesus and these guys got their opportunity, I don't claim to hold a light to anyone who does that. But I mean, I'm just saying we're looking at what they got wrong We're not saying they were wrong, full stop. We're just looking at what they got wrong. And 
we're going to see in the next two talks various teachings and practices concerning church life that they brought in. But in this first talk, we're just going to look at one. We're going to look at others in the next talk, but this talk, we're going to concentrate on what I... It's their first, chronologically, it's the first thing they got wrong. But I want to maintain it's the most serious thing that they got wrong. And I want to show you that this false teaching that they brought in was actually the foundation of all the others. So what we're going to look at in this talk, the wrong teaching, the wrong practice they introduced regarding the church, this is the seedbed that all the other false teachings grew in. All right. So what we're going to look at now is what I call the foundational error of the early church fathers. And it's all to do with the nature, the actual nature of what the church is. And we're going to look at what the early church fathers taught and the practices that they developed uh, in regards to what we could call the government or the leadership of the Christian church. So what we're going to occupy ourselves with in this talk is what does the Bible say about leadership in a church and what did the fathers in contradistinction introduce that actually went completely against it. Now, first of all, let's just very quickly answer this question. What does the New Testament teach about leadership in the church? People think, well, Beresford, isn't that a series of 20 talks in itself? No, it's about 20 minutes. Go to Acts 20. Acts chapter 20. And I'm going to read verse 17 and then verse 28. <clears throat> Acts 20, verse 17 and then verse 28. Right. <coughs> um, oops. Right. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. Uh, simple as that. And then in verse 28, and he's talking to these guys who are the elders of the church. <clears throat> Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Now, what I want to show you there is that there are three different things or the Bible refers to church leaders in three different ways. You'll notice that Paul sent for the elders of the church. <clears throat> now, this word elder, presbuteros, and this speaks of the qualification of a church leader. And it's simply that of maturity in the Lord. And in other letters, Paul defines the qualities that make up a man who can be recognised as an elder. And primarily, it's maturity in the Lord. But in verse 28, Paul goes on to say, Keep watch, and he's talking to the elders. 
He says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And this word overseer is episkopos. And it means someone who oversees. It also gets translated in English translations as a bishop. So whenever you get the word overseer or bishop, they are synonymous terms. They're just different translations of the same Greek word. Episkopos. And what we have here in an overseer or a bishop is the task of an elder relative to the church as a corporate body. Because a church, by definition, consists of more than one person. So in bishop or overseer, we have the function of an elder relative to the church as a corporate body. Notice also that, again, in verse 28, Paul goes on to say, be shepherds of the church of God. And that word, shepherds, in the Greek is poimeno. And there are two ways you can translate. You can translate it shepherd, or you can translate it pastor. Pastor, the pastoral symphony, all about the countryside. Matters pastorally, pasture. All right, these are all countryside words. They're field words. Picture of a shepherd. And here we have the function or the task of an elder relative to individuals within the church. So can you see that? We have an elder. That's the qualification. Mature in the Lord. Older brother. That's all the word means. Older brother. We have episkopos, bishop or overseer. That aspect of an elder's function that relates to the church corporately. And then we have poimeno, shepherd, pastor, which relates to the care of people on an individual level. Feed my sheep, as Jesus said to Peter. So here we have leadership in the church, and a leader in a church is known as, biblically synonymous terms, an elder, a bishop or overseer, pastor or shepherd. Synonymous terms for the same person. Go with me to 1 Peter. Peter's first letter and find chapter 5. Read verses 1 to 3. He's writing to a church. He said, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's suffering, but, you know. Then go on to verse 2. Be shepherds of God's flock. They are. Be pastors. Synonymous term. Hey, you guys are elders. Be pastors. And then he says, serving as overseers. Bishops. Synonymous terms. Churches were led by elders, stroke, pastors, shepherds, stroke, bishops, overseers. Not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And you will find, whenever eldership is focused on in the New Testament, it is always plural. It is also always male. 
it is also always, and this is vital, homegrown. An elder of a church is an elder in a church that he has been raised up from amongst. See? This idea of uh, plonking leadership from the outside is totally anti-biblical. It is not unbiblical, it is anti-biblical. Elders were raised up from amongst churches. So that if a man was an elder, he was an elder in a church where over years those people had observed his life and recognised him as an elder. Also, eldership, whenever it is focused on in the New Testament, is co-equal. And I'll tell you why it's co-equal. Because it is also non-hierarchical. There is no authority hierarchy in the New Testament church. Well, there is. It's Jesus and everyone else. In the scripture, this eldership is functional. It is not positional. And we've seen here Peter saying, not lording it over the flock. Now, Peter said that because he was remembering when he wrote this the time when Jesus said, the Gentiles lord it over one another. And he said, it won't be so amongst you. And when Jesus spoke about authority in the church, he said, do you know what your leaders are going to be like? Children and slaves. The least. The very people who don't have any authority. Because the point is, authority in the church is not positional. It is a moral authority that people have responded to because they recognise it. Alright? So, therefore, what we're seeing is this. The church is to be led by a plurality of co-equal, non-hierarchical, home-grown elders who are also referred to as bishops or overseers, who are also referred to as pastors or shepherds. All synonymous terms. Um, If you go to 1 Timothy, chapter 3. One Timothy, chapter 3. And I'm going to read the first two verses. Timothy, contrary to probably everything you've ever been told, was not a pastor of a church. Timothy was an apostle. He was in leadership over a church until that church had its own leadership. Then the apostles went. And part of his job was to recognise, appoint elders. And once the church had its own indigenous leadership, it didn't need the apostles anymore and off they went. The idea of a church having a pastor is a totally unbiblical idea. It has no warrant in scripture whatsoever. Now then, first two verses. Here is a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, or bishop, uh, you know, episcopos, he desires a noble task. Now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, and then it goes through various uh, qualifications there. Now then, if you go now to Titus, and um, first of all, chapter 1, verse 5 and 6, 
he says, the reason I left you in Crete was that, you see, Titus is the same as uh, Timothy, left temporarily to lead a church until it had its own leadership. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town. An elder must be blameless. And then you get the same list that Paul had written to Timothy and said was true of overseers. And then here, talking about the elders to Titus, then you go in verse 7, it says, since an overseer is entrusted with God's work. See? Bishop, elder, these are all synonymous terms. And so, what we're seeing here, there were deacons who were used sometimes in churches for administrative duties, but they weren't looked on as being leaders in, in, in kind of, in that sense. Uh, you know, it's purely practical stuff. But what we're seeing is, in the New Testament, as churches were planted, universally, they were led by a group, plural, male, co-equal, non-hierarchical, home-grown elders who were also referred to as pastors or shepherds, and who were also referred to as bishops or overseers. Now then, I want to tell you what the main thrust is behind this. Why? It's so that there's no one in charge. And I'll tell you why, because Jesus is in charge. And if you put one man in charge, I'll tell you what's going to happen to him, he'll get deceived, because he'll get proud. And he'll get deceived and he'll get proud... Because all of us get deceived and all of us are proud. So unless we have a safety feature built in through accountability, we're all going to end up in the same trap. So this plurality, this non-hierarchicalness, this whole caboodle is designed to minimise the chance of leadership going off the rails. See? And also these elders are responsible and accountable to the church they lead. Because everyone else in that church is accountable to that church. You see? So it's all there to minimise corruption, to minimise the chance of deception. And of course the thrust is no big chief. Alright? There's no big chief. It's a safeguard. Now, in this talk and the next, I'm going to be drawing on three sources. Source number one, already done it, the Bible. The second source I'm going to be drawing on will be the actual writings of the early church fathers themselves. So I will actually read to you what they wrote, so you know firsthand what they taught. And then thirdly, I'm going to be drawing on acknowledged Bible scholars. And what all these Bible scholars I'm going to be quoting from have in common is that they're all what you call here in America big hitters. These are top guys. Because I want you to understand that I don't ask you to accept anything because I say it. Alright? I'm going to show you everything from other sources. Okay, I don't want anyone thinking this is Beresford's slant, it's just Beresford's interpretation. I'm going to show you that when it comes to how churches ought to be set up and function, it's not a question of interpretation. All the Bible scholars are agreed. Now, there's a guy called A.M. Rennick. He was a professor of church history at the Free Church College in Edinburgh. 
Now, in 1958, he wrote a book which certainly in England is a seminal work. I mean, there's not a Bible college, there's not a theological college in the land that don't hand you this book as standard basic reading. And it's called The Story of the Church by A.M. Rennick. Anyone heard of this? Rennick? Story of the Church? Good. Hands going up. Top man in his field. Uh, it's published by InterVarsity Press, and I'm going to quote you from chapter 1 on pages 20 to 21. When we come to consider the permanent officers of the church, we find that in the days of the apostles, elders and deacons were appointed and their duties defined. The office of elder, I would disagree with him that it's an office, I would say it's a function, but the, the, the point remains intact. The office of elder is variously described in the New Testament as bishop, pastor, teacher, preacher, minister, and steward. And try and get out of your, or try and get it into your head that the word minister translates servant. See, you see, we, we read. You know, we get the words all wrong. Thus, the various terms mentioned referred to the same officer, but each presented a different aspect of their work. Thus, pastor indicated their duty to shepherd the flock of Christ. Bishop, a word used to translate the Greek episkopos, indicated that they were overseers and Paul shows that as overseers they had to feed the church of God. He gets that, relates there to Acts 20 where we read. That the presbyteros and episkopos, elder and bishop, were the same is shown by many facts. Furthermore, the qualifications for bishop and elder were the same. I showed you that too. Scarcely any scholar today, I'll read that again, scarcely any scholar today would dispute the words of the late Dr. J.B. Lightfoot, Bishop of Durham, and an undoubted authority. He now quotes from Lightfoot's commentary on Philippians from page 93. It is a fact now generally recognised by theologians of all shades of opinion that in the language of the New Testament the same officer in the church is called indifferently bishop and elder. Now no one who knows their biblical onions, no one who has any understanding of the New Testament at all would argue with what I have just shown you. In a very few minutes, I communicated to you how the apostles set churches up. I've defined to you the nature and the pattern of leadership in a Christian church. And you know there's not a scholar of repute that would disagree with a word I've said. I'll tell you why not, because uh, I take it they read the same Bible as I do. How can you come to any conclusion other than what we've said? Donald Guthrie was formerly vice-principal of the London Bible College. Now, I want to read you something he's written in the Lion Handbook of the Bible. So, I mean, the Lion Handbook of the Bible, we're not exactly into esoteric theology here, are we? The Lion Handbook of the Bible, we all read that, don't we? 
And in the second revised edition in 1978, he writes this. There's a section on 1 Timothy chapter 3 on page 620, obviously published by Lion Publishing. And he writes this. It was Paul's practice to appoint several elders, then he puts brackets, same thing as bishops, and he closes the brackets, to take charge of each church. Well, Guthrie knows his stuff, reads the same book as I do. It's called the New Testament. Um, anyone heard of Vine's Expository Dictionary? Yeah? Right. Let me uh, quote you from Vine's Expository Dictionary. Now, if you look under the heading for bishop, or brackets, overseer, you'll read this. Literally an overseer. Note, presbuteros, an elder, is another term for the same person as bishop or overseer. And then, if in Vines, if you turn to the heading under pastor, he says, this was the service committed to elders. And then he puts brackets, overseers or bishops. Vines Expository Dictionary of the Bible. Kind of pretty seminal work, isn't it? So, can you see, there is no dispute amongst the scholars over what the Bible teaches in regards to church leadership. If we ask the question, how were churches set up relative to leadership? There, there we have it. And all the scholars agree. So I don't want you to think this is just my interpretation. I don't want you to think this is just my slant. This is what I maintain. This is what the Bible says. And all these scholars, they maintain it's what the Bible says as well. So it raises a question, doesn't it? We've quoted from J.B. Lightfoot. <coughs> who himself, although a long time ago, was a bishop in the Church of England, indeed, Bishop of Durham in England. And we've got to ask the question, so why was Lightfoot, who was clearly a wonderful believer, and, and he was a Bible scholar, and he knew what the Bible taught about leadership, so why was he in a system which was not even close Indeed, an hierarchical bishop, which is kind of the equivalent of a, you know, sort of managing director of the British division of a corporation. Can you see what I mean? This is high up in the hierarchy. And not only that, he's a priest. You think, why? And in order to answer that question, we now turn to the actual writings, or some of the actual writings, of the early church fathers. Now, for those who want to know, all my quotes from the early church fathers um, are taken from one of the seminal works by Henry Bettenson. And uh, it's called The Early Christian Fathers, a selection from the writings of the fathers from St. Clement of Rome to St. Athanasius. And it's uh, printed or published by the Oxford University Press. And Henry Bettenson is the translator. It's just translating their stuff from the original languages, just like the New Testament. So he is the translator, and he very usefully in his books codified it under different headings of subjects. So it's a very, very, very useful book. So, first of all, we turn to Clement of Rome. Now, we're looking at a letter he wrote in AD 95. He wrote to the Corinthians. Now, just, just, just to give you the historical background here, John the, Apostle, John the Apostle is in all probability sealing the letter that's got Revelation in to send it off. Do you know what I mean? The finishing touches to the book of Revelation are being put in place. John is the last apostle. All the others are dead and gone. 
John alone remains the very last book of the New Testament is be, in all probability being, you know, finished off. At that time, Clement of Rome, sorry, is a leader in the Church of Rome. Now, let us read what he wrote about leadership in the church. The high priest has been given his own special services. The priests have been assigned their own place. And the Levites have their special ministrations enjoined on them. The layman is bound by the ordinances of the laity. Now, as early as AD 95, what we find here is this. Um, a, a very important and well-known Christian leader, the leader of the church at Rome, is applying the Levitical priesthood to the church. He's taking as his model, I suppose people would say, not what the apostles did. He's taking as his model the Levitical priesthood. And here, as early as AD 95, John the Apostle on Patmos, you know, mailing Revelation to the seven churches, we have the first distinction between clergy and laity. And what Clement of Rome did is that he made leadership into a priesthood. And non-leadership became a laity. As we proceed, I wonder what the high priest he refers to will turn into. Well, we'll get there later. So here we have, this is the beginning of church history. We have the clergy-laity divide. Now then, if you go back to 1 Peter, only this time I want chapter 2. And again, let's ask ourselves, here we have the introduction of clergy and laity, the leaders of the clergy, the laity uh, are not the leaders as it were. Um, and let's ask ourselves, does this square with scripture? I mean, we can understand that Clement of Rome got this wrong. He might not have read all the New Testament. Uh, but the question is, how did it survive when the church did have the New Testament? Now then, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. Peter writes this. He says, in verse 4, he says, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then if you go to verse 9, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Now, if you look in verse 9, that word there for people... In the Greek is laos. And that's where we get the word laity from. But in verse 5 and in verse 9, we have the Greek word for priesthood. Now, what I want you to notice is that what Peter says here is that the laos are the priesthood. You see, the people are the priesthood. Not, you've got a priesthood and then you've got the people. Peter quite simply says, the priesthood are the people. Now, if you go back to 
verse three, sorry, back to 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 3. And we've seen this verse, he's writing to elders, and he says, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples of the flock. Now that little phrase, those entrusted to you. Now that phrase refers to the people in the church who aren't elders. right? The non-leaders, if you like. But what's interesting is that the word, the Greek word for those entrusted over you is kleros. And kleros is where we get the word clergy from. So when it comes to this idea of having a clergy-laity divide, we see that in the New Testament, every believer is called a priest. Uh, I'll tell you why every believer is called a priest. What the priest does, he mediates between God and man. And if you know Jesus, whether you're man, whether you're woman, whether you're a four-year-old, if you know Jesus, you can mediate between God and man. And I'll tell you why, because you can introduce anyone to your friend, to Jesus. So every believer is a priest. That's what the priesthood does, brings people to God. We all do that. So therefore... This priesthood includes everyone in the church by definition. The word laos, which we get laity from, means the people, and they are the priesthood. Yet the word clergy in the Bible comes, and it means those who aren't elders. Can you see what a a total nonsense it is? Because, of course, when you get an anti-biblical system, when you read it back into the Bible, you see it's a complete nonsense. It uses all the wrong words, it uses all the wrong terminology. It's a complete nonsense. Any idea of a clergy laity divide cuts right against the heart of the nature of the church. Because a church is simply an extended family of God. That's all it is. So, the Apostle John isn't dead yet, and we've got an ordained presbytery and the presbytery is where the word priest came from right let's go to ignatius our early church father number two bishop of antioch were at ad 110 so we're 15 years after clement of rome now i'm going to quote from several letters this is him writing to the ephesians your reverent presbytery now i'll I'll read that again presbytery that's the term that eventually became priest your reverent presbytery. So these leaders now, they're not just priests, they're reverends. Have you ever wondered why leaders of churches in institutional churches that aren't based on the Bible call themselves reverent so-and-so? Ignatius. Your reverent presbytery is tuned to the bishop. Huh? Well, sorry, now we've got priests... Now we've got a bishop over the priests. Is tuned to the bishop as strings to a lyre. Let us be careful not to resist the bishop, that through our submission to the bishop, we may belong to God. We should regard the bishop as the Lord himself. Right? 
So what we've got now is we've got an hierarchy charged with you either submit to these guys or you're in rebellion against God. This is a letter to the Magnesians. I advise you, act always in godly concord with the bishop, presiding as the counterpart of God. So, yeah, the bishop is as God to you. And the presbyters, that's the priests, as the counterpart of the council of the apostles. The apostles, they had the inspired word of God, didn't they? As the Lord did nothing without the Father, either by himself or by means of the apostles, so you must do nothing without the bishop and the presbyters. This is 15 years after John the Apostle has finished writing the last book of the Bible and we have an hierarchical priesthood over the church turning it into a religious institution as opposed to being a family and doing so with a claim of authority that somewhat reminds me of the tradition of the elders. This is his letter to the Trallians. Respect the bishop as the counterpart of the father and the presbyters as the council of God and the college of the apostles. Without those, no church is recognised. See, 15 years after John finished writing the New Testament, if you didn't buy into this, you were just excommunicated. To the Smyrnians. Let no one do anything that pertains to the church apart from the bishop. It is not permitted to baptise or hold a love feast. At least they were still doing that right. Independently of the bishop. Though you have to get the bishop's permission. But whatever he approves, that is also well pleasing to God. Now, we saw, what was the push behind the nature of eldership in the church? No big chief. Just brothers together in a family of God. We got our big chief. We haven't just got a big chief. We've got a big chief whose permission you have to get before you do anything. Because the only way you can know what God wants is to hear what the bishop has to say about it. Where have we come? Co-equal eldership has been changed to an ordained ministry of priests. The non-hierarchical nature of this co-equal eldership has been replaced by an hierarchy that any sect would be proud of. This is unquestioned obedience to your leaders. Tertullian, 200 AD. Now you'd have thought that um, with the bishop we have gone as high as we can get, haven't we? 200 AD. 105 years after John has finished writing the Bible. The supreme priest, that is the bishop. So we've seen the priests are reverend. The bishop is as God himself. He is now supreme. I wonder what this aspect turned into, the idea of a supreme priest. The supreme priest, that is the bishop, has the right of conferring baptism. After him, the presbyters and deacons, but only with the bishop's authority. Otherwise, the laity has the right. 
how much more is the discipline of reverence and humility incumbent upon laymen since it also befits their superiors? So what he's saying now, if there are baptisms to be done, the bishop's got to do it. The bishop's got to okay it. If the bishop's not around, then it's got to be the priest. If the priest aren't around, then it's got to be the deacons. If the deacons aren't around, then the, the, the laity can baptise. But make sure that their lives square up to their superiors, the priests. You see? Well, what's happened to non-hierarchical worship, for heaven's sake? We've, we've got a feudal system here. We've got, I mean, in England, I know all about the class system. We've got the spiritual class system. Unbelievable. And he goes on to say, it would be idle for us to suppose that what is forbidden to priests is allowed to the laity. The distinction between the order of clergy and the people has been established by the authority of the church. So the clergy-laity divide is now official church dogma. The church has declared it so, taking to itself the idea that it has the final authority. So what we've got here is our full-blown, or we've got a full-blown priesthood under a bishop, which is superior to the layman. We have the exact opposite to how the apostles under the direct authority of Jesus himself, established churches. The church has totally abrogated Jesus' authority and is doing something that is completely at odds with what Jesus taught. However, they didn't have the New Testament. I can excuse them so far. Okay, Cyprian, Bishop of Carthage. This is 250 AD. Now then, this is interesting. If Christ Jesus, our Lord and God, is himself the high priest of God the Father, and first offered himself as a sacrifice to the Father, and commanded this to be done in remembrance of himself, then assuredly the priest acts truly in Christ's place, when he reproduces what Christ did, and he then offers a true and complete sacrifice to God the Father if he begins to offer as he sees Christ himself has offered. Let me tell you, he's writing there about the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper had gone from being a full meal, which is what it started out as, that's what the early church did, it has now become an actual sacrifice done by the priests on behalf of those present. So what we would now know as the Catholic Mass was here as early as 250 AD. Now, this false teaching, this first teaching that went so wrong, can you see, it had the effect that any other teachings they brought in would almost automatically be accepted, and for this reason. This wrong teaching of theirs about the nature of government in the church gives them virtually complete authority. So therefore, it's guaranteed, we've already established that what they've said is that the bishop is the counterpart of God. <coughs> Do you want to know what God's will? What does the bishop say? So it, by definition, anything that came after this was, was virtually inevitably going to, um, to be accepted. And what we've got to ask now is, look, why 
Why did this happen? How did they get away with it? We ask this of the early church, uh, the, the traditions of the elders, didn't we? We say, how did the Pharisees get away with doing it? And now we've got to ask, how did these guys get away with, with declaring themselves the final authority in the Christian church? And, um, you know, sort of like in, 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 in answering that, we've, we've, we've got to find out what's, what's going on here. Now then, how they did this, theologically speaking, is that they introduced a teaching that came to be known and still is today as the doctrine of the apostolic succession. Now, that will probably ring bells. Remember, however, these guys do not have the completed New Testament that they can tuck under their arm the same as we can. And they faced all manner of problems. There were people coming into the church with the weirdest beliefs. You know, Jesus was an angel. Jesus was a phantasm. He was an illusion. All this rubbish. Uh, Jesus was an ordinary man, uh, but at his baptism, the Christ descended on him. And then the Christ went back to heaven and left him on his own when he died on the cross. You've got all this rubbish going around, which totally got to the very core and heart of Jesus' divinity. And these guys had to defend the Christian faith uh, during this time of suffering. Of, of, of chaos and you see all the people coming in with these false teachings they were all claiming the inspiration of God they were all saying well God showed me that Jesus is an angel you know God showed me that Jesus wasn't real he just looked real actually he was a spectre and they were all claiming to be led of God so we've got to understand this is the this situation that, that, that these guys are in now then Dr. John Drain is a lecturer in religious studies at the Stirling, of uh, Stirling University in Scotland. He's also adjunct professor of New Testament at Fuller Theological Seminary in California, and he's a visiting professor at Morling College in Sydney. Big hitter, all right? Now, this is from Introducing the New Testament, which is also published by Lyon, written by him, and uh, in a section in Chapter 22 on authority... Um, on page 403, he says this. It is important to realise that the movement towards a more authoritarian church hierarchy also originated in the fight against unacceptable beliefs. At a time when Gnostics were claiming a special authority because of their alleged endowment with the Spirit, these guys were saying, well, Holy Spirit shown us. See? Uh, at a time when Gnostics were claiming a special authority because of their alleged endowment with the Spirit, it was important for the mainstream church to have its own clear source of power. It was of little practical use for the church's leaders to claim, even if it may have been true, that they, rather than their opponents, were truly inspired by the Spirit. They needed something more than that, and they found it in the Apostles. In the earliest period, supreme authority had rested with them. So, they reasoned, anyone with recognised authority in the church must be succeeding to the position once held by the apostles. They were the apostles' successors and could trace their office back in a clear line of descent from the very earliest times. They stood in an apostolic succession. Now, what John Drain is explaining here is exactly what I'm saying. You had a situation where people were coming into the church with all these dreadful heresies and they were all saying the Holy Spirit shown us. 
And these guys were saying, no, Jesus is divine. He really did die on the cross. He really did rise again from the dead. He really did save us, etc., etc. And the Gnostics are saying, no, the Holy Spirit has shown us that isn't true. And the Fathers are saying, well, the Holy Spirit has shown us it is true. And the Gnostics are saying, well, the Holy Spirit has shown... And it's going around like a tennis match. I mean, it's just absolutely ridiculous. So therefore, what the Fathers did is they reasoned, they said, look, we've got to have something a little bit more substantial than just saying the Holy Spirit has shown us. So what they did is they, they said, well, look, we can trace ourselves back as the successors of the original apostles. Therefore, what we are saying must be as inspired as what they said. Can you see the argument? Now, they didn't know that the entire completed New Testament was just round the corner. All they had to do was wait a bit longer, and it would have all been sorted out because they'd have had black and white chapter and verse. But they introduced this idea, and so therefore, it was fine to say, well, we must be right because we followed the, you know, the apostles. That was okay where they were right about the divinity of Jesus and stuff like that, but it weren't too good for where they were wrong. Because all the wrong stuff they were introducing got accepted as being the absolute authoritative word of God. Now, let, let's see them argue this. Clement of Rome. The apostles have received the gospel for us from the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ was sent forth by God and the apostles by Christ. Both these appointments were made in an orderly way according to the will of God. The apostles appointed the first fruits of their labours to be bishops and the deacons for those who would believe. Now, obviously, his understanding of what a bishop was was totally different from the apostles. A bishop was just an elder and a pastor in a plurality of co-equal, homegrown guys. But by now, he's thinking in terms of a big chief over churches. But, of course, what he's arguing, in effect, he's saying, look, the Father sent Jesus, Jesus sent the apostles, the apostles sent us. So we're right. You see, that, that, that's the argument. We, we already saw in Ignatius that he argued that the, the, the bishop is the counterpart of God. Uh, the priests are the counterpart of the apostles. Can you see? The point was, God sent Jesus, so Jesus was right. Yeah, correct. Jesus sent the apostles, so the apostles were right. Yeah, correct. The apostles sent the fathers, so the fathers were right. No, not correct. Because by the time the apostles had finished, the entire written revelation of God was going to be available in written... It already was available in written form. It just wasn't completely compiled. So this logic that they went through was completely false and incredibly dangerous. But it wouldn't have mattered if it had all been sorted out once the New Testament was available to everyone. Irenaeus, Bishop of Leon. By knowledge of the truth, we mean the teaching of the apostles... The order of the church, as established from the earliest times throughout the world, the distinctive stamp of the body of Christ preserved through the episcopal succession. That's the apostolic succession. For, to the bishop, the apostles committed the care of the church, which is in each place, which has come down to our own time, safeguarded without any written document. Isn't that incredible what they're saying? They're saying God's will for the church has come through us. It's not written down. Paul's letters are all written down. Not all this stuff. Well, they wrote it down eventually. It's the direct equivalent of an oral law. And it flies straight in the face of what Jesus and the apostles taught. And of course what he's saying is, again, the Father sent, uh, the Father sent Jesus, so Jesus was right. Jesus sent the apostles, so they were right. They sent us, so we're right. Completely false logic. Cyprian. 
the Bishop of Carthage. And this is writing on the procedure for choosing a bishop. He says, therefore, we should be careful to observe and keep the procedure we received from the divine tradition and from the practice of the apostles which is kept among us. The divine tradition. Now then, what does he mean by that? If he meant the New Testament, I'd agree with him. What does he mean? The teachings of the early church fathers, handed down without written documents. See? This is where it all went so wrong. But precisely because of this apostolic succession doctrine, their teaching was comprehensively accepted virtually without question by just about everyone. And, uh, you know, so, so, so we can see... We, we can see the same thing happening as happened to Israel in regards to the tradition of the elders. Tertullian himself, I was chatting with a couple of guys earlier about this. See, the way that they reasoned, I mean, they, you know, they changed loads of things. They made remarriage forbidden under any circumstances, um, you know, and stuff like that. Um, but you've got problems, haven't you? Because, I mean, there'd be other people who kind of say, well, look, no, I mean, I've read Paul's, I've read Corinthians, and I'm, I'm sure it says there that you can, under certain circumstances, remarry, you see. And, and, and to counter this, Tertullian just maintained, look, Paul changed Moses. Because if you look at Paul's teachings, it's different from Moses. But that's fair enough, Old Covenant versus New Covenant. But what he argues is, look, if Paul could change Moses, we can change Paul. And this is what happened. This is what happened. They literally believed that what they were teaching was an ongoing evolution and revelation from the Holy Spirit, which any time it seemed to go against anything they could glean from the New Testament, they just put forward, yeah, but what we're saying is the inspired word of God. And what happened by the time the New Testament was fully recognised, compiled, put together, by the time you could tuck the New Testament under your arm, as it were, you would have expected that they'd have read through this, the church, and they said, oh my goodness, we've got that one wrong. Oh my goodness, we've got that one wrong. Oh, we got that one right, I'm encouraged, that's good, thank you. See, And they'd have tested everything, everything by the word of God, thrown out everything that was wrong, brought in everything that should have been, that shouldn't be there, yeah. The whole thing changed it so that it could have become everything that Jesus and the apostles taught. But do you know what they did instead? Because of this doctrine of the apostolic succession, what they said was, the New Testament can only be understood in the light of the teachings of the early church fathers. So what they did, they interpreted the Bible according to the fathers. They didn't test the fathers by the Bible, they tested the Bible by the fathers. Now what did Israel do with the tradition of the elders? Did they test it by the Old Testament? No, they tested the Old Testament by their traditions. And where the Old Testament went against their traditions, they went against the Old Testament. And the, early, well, the, the, the Christian church, by the time it had the New Testament, fully available, where the New Testament went against the teaching of the early church fathers, they junked the New Testament. They said, no, you've got to read the New Testament in the light of the teaching of the um, early church fathers. So can you see, the whole thing for the last 1900 years, clergy-laity divide, priests, bishops, 
ordained ministries, set apart leadership from the people, pastors of churches. Who's the pastor of this church? All this stuff is nothing whatever to do with the New Testament. It has all come from the teaching of the early church fathers. It is the traditions of the early church fathers as opposed to the traditions handed down by the apostles. And we saw that the New Testament makes it very clear we are commanded to abide by the traditions of the apostles. So, can you see that I'm saying that this was their seedbed error? With this in place, all the plants of deception that were yet to grow had perfect soil. With this foundation built, every brick of false teaching fitted perfectly on it. It's inevitable that having changed the nature of the leadership of the church, that that would change the nature of the church itself. And what we're going to see in the next talk is how all this filtered down with various practices until the church became not just different from how the church once had been under the apostles, but, as I'm going to show you, the exact opposite to how the church had been under the apostles. Let us re-quote Rennick. The office of elder is variously described in the New Testament as pastor, bishop, teacher, preacher, minister, steward. This, in my opinion, this is the opinion of anyone who is able to read the New Testament without prejudice, just saying, what does the New Testament say? And the scholars do that. They don't abide by it. All these scholars are establishment men. <laughs> There's no disagreement on what the Bible teaches. The disagreement is whether we go by the Bible or the early church fathers. These scholars are early church fathers men. But there's no disagreement about amongst them as to what the New Testament says. If you say, look, do you plant a church like the apostles did or like the early church fathers? Now, if I was to say, oh, I go for the apostles, every biblical scholar would know exactly what I'm talking about. It's just that they don't agree with doing it that way. They've gone with the fathers, that's all. But there's no disagreement about what churches were like when set up by the apostles themselves. Let me re-quote Lightfoot, Bishop of Durham, for heaven's sake. It is a fact, now generally accepted by theologians of all shades of opinion, that in the language of the New Testament, the same officer in the church is called indifferently Bishop and Elder. Uh, John Drain, quoting R.P.C. Hans, and I haven't been able to track down where this quote came from, I just remember reading it. Of official Christian priests, we must honestly admit that there is in the New Testament not the faintest whisper. And from Vine, another quote from Vine, and this is under his heading for priest in section 1c, he says, the New Testament knows nothing of a sacerdotal class, that means priestly, the New Testament knows nothing of a priestly class in contrast to the laity. So in regards to the leadership of the church, the nature of the leadership of the church, and the thing is, anything that has a leadership, whatever the leadership is, will define what the thing is. 
So because Satan got this in right at the start and it was never corrected, by definition changed the church in its very nature. And I'm showing you that this is the tradition of the early church fathers and it flies completely in the face of the teaching of the New Testament. Now, obviously, the ultimate of all this is the Catholic Church with the Pope. Do you remember I raised the question, what do you do with a supreme bishop? Well, you call him the Pope. You see how it was all there. And yeah, we can look at the Catholic Church with the Pope, we can look at the Anglican Church with its hierarchical bishops and priests and things like that. And yeah, let's ignore, that is further down the road than, for instance, Baptist churches or Pentecostal churches. But one of the things that I've got to show you, they're all in the same boat. They're all in the same error. Because look, when it comes to the nature of leadership, what is the push? What is the thing that matters? What is the crunch point as far as the Bible's concerned? You do not have an hierarchy. And you certainly don't have an hierarchy with one man at the top. Now then, and that leadership is homegrown and recognised by the church that they are raised up amongst. And they're plural. Now look, that's what the Bible teaches. It doesn't matter how you go against it. If you go against it, you're in disobedience to the Word of God. Whether it's a church with a Pope, priests, bishops, or a Southern Baptist church with a pastor, exactly the same error is there. An hierarchy with someone at the top brought in from the outside representing and running the whole thing as an institution. That is the exact opposite. This is one of the things we're going to see again and again and again. The issue is not how you go against the Bible. It's that you are going against it. And that's what we're going to see again and again and again. The same fundamental mistake is being made. House churches, some of the most hierarchical, dictatorial, unbiblical churches I've ever come across are house churches. See? You know, with the, the senior elder and the shepherds and the apostles and the prophets in this hierarchy and all the churches under these networks, these pyramids with the error apostle at the top. It's all the same fundamental error. And in the next talk, we're going to see how that impacts on the day-to-day -day life of a church. How it changes not just the leadership, but then every aspect of church life becomes the opposite to what it should be. And so, whether Anglican, Baptist, house church with senior pastors, what is wrong is the idea of stand-apart leadership. Let me define leadership in the church. One of the lads. A pleb. In Roman society, you had the aristocracy and the common men were called plebs. In the church, everyone's a pleb. There should be no non-plebs. There shouldn't be leaders and led in a church. The church is a family. Simple as that. And it doesn't matter how you go against, which particular tradition that's anti-biblical you go for. If the tradition is anti-biblical, 
say, whether it's the Catholic Church right down the end of the road, or whether it's Baptist Pentecostal churches with their pastors a bit, you know, nearer, it's still all the wrong thing. I mean, think of it. What have we done with leadership? We use the term minister, the Bible does. The minister translates the word servant or sometimes slave. In the Bible, yeah, you can refer to a church leader as a minister. You mustn't get mixed up with the minister of the church, as if the priest or the pastor. That doesn't exist, one-man leadership. But the point is, even thinking in terms of a church leader being a minister, we've taken the word minister, which biblically represents servanthood and being at the bottom of the pile, and we've invested it with kudos. We've invested it with, oh, here comes the minister of the church. And this is what false teaching does. It reverses the word of God. It goes against the word of God whilst being hypocritical enough to try and be finding credence from the word of God. And all the time, the church is being destroyed. Let me tell you another thing that happens. You get churches with the pastor, the man at the top. They say, we're going really biblical. Because there's a group of elders now. We're going real biblical. But you see, the elders are under the authority of the pastor. If anything, that's not more biblical, that's just more deceptive. It's more likely to fool more people. Because as long as you've got one man at the top. And what we've forgotten when it comes to leadership is this. We've understood that Jesus is the head of the church universal, by which I mean the church throughout space and time, past, present and future. What we've forgotten is that Jesus is meant to be the head of each church. Amen. We love having one man at the top where well, you can have it in a biblical church. He's called Jesus. And any leadership is there simply to help everyone in the church find out what Jesus wants and to do it. Acknowledging that the only person in charge is Jesus and he reveals himself through his word. Yeah, he reveals himself through the leading of the Spirit, but that never goes against his word. And that is what the church is there to do. An extended family of God trying to do what Father and Big Brother want us to do. There's no room for hierarchy. There's no room for institutionalism. Introduce it and it's gone. The church's family is gone. And in the next talk we're going to keep seeing that. Now there's a guy in England called Ray Simpson. He's an Anglican priest. He's spirit-filled, he's Bible-believing, he's a genuine believer, and I'm sure he's a wonderful man. But he's an Anglican priest, and um, there's a magazine in England, I don't know whether you get it here, called Prophecy Today. And uh, in, in the May-June issue in 1988, he wrote this. And he was answering the question whether or not he should be staying in the Anglican church in the light of all the immorality and all, you know, all that sort of stuff, all the, the heresy and stuff like that. You know, bishops denying that Jesus rose again from the dead and stuff. And he wrote this. I can justify staying in the Church of England because it's committed to the teaching of the Bible and the early church fathers. Now, what I like about Ray Simpson is his honesty. He's not pretending that the Bible is the final authority. He's saying the Bible and the early church fathers. He has two final authorities. Now, obviously, he's in trouble, as we've seen, because you end up going against one or the other. And, you know, 
whether Anglican priest, someone in a Pentecostal church, it's all the same fundamental problem. Being based on the teachings of the early church fathers, which directly went against the teaching of the apostles. Now then, it was understandable. They, they could not read all the writings of the apostles and the prophets and stuff like that. They did not have the completed New Testament to draw on. But once the church did have it, they should have radically changed everything back to what the, disciple, what the original apostles taught. But they didn't. They rather went for the authority of the early church fathers. Now next time, we're going to look at the other false teachings that came out of this foundational one. And we're going to see how, you know, we've done the government, and we're going to see how this all sort of like dripped down from the top, and that every aspect of church life was changed. And that everything that made a New Testament church a New Testament church was rejected, was overruled. Every aspect of the churches, the way that churches were designed, if you like, under the teaching of the apostles, every aspect of that design was changed. And it's not just that something different came in, the opposite came in. So we'll go there next time. For more information, contact the Chigwell Christian Fellowship on our website at www.house-church.org.